Well, once again, we're sat in the kitchen at Wiggly Wigglers, Lower Blakemere Farm, Herefordshire. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Farmer Phil from Lower Blakemere Farm, Herefordshire. Exactly. Now, Farmer Phil, it's a bit of a tense day today, isn't it? Well, it's our annual lottery of TB testing, certainly. So um, there is reason to be quite hopeful in as much that Rob tested clear yesterday. And Rob's from just over the hill. Yeah, so he's, he's in the hot spot as well. So the fact that he tested clear is, is a hopeful thing. But you've been out and you've got all the cattle in. Yeah, well, I've been there. they're all near to the barns at the moment, but we'll get them in, in front of the vet in a minute. And he will basically feel and measure, if necessary, the skin reaction to the inoculants that we injected them with on Tuesday. And is it subjective or is it scientific that he's feeling the nodules? It's scientific. Hopefully, if the test works perfectly, you will get a reaction or not. And if you get a reaction, you then measure the size of the lump. And it is that there is a scale that you read off these measurements. And basically, it is the reaction that indicates whether the cow has seen or got TB. So today is the day? Partly because we know that we haven't been addressing the disease, and partly because none of our cattle show any outward signs of having TB nor would we expect them to so that we really have no idea where we're at Mm. the consequences of an animal being a reactor are terminal for that animal and you know every so often you hear a story of somebody having a herd of cattle that are clear they have a TB test and half of them are reactors so they take either half your herd or they might even say this is so bad we'll take the whole lot And then what will happen to us if that terrible thing was to happen? Well, now we've got to the situation where the compensation that the government pay you for slaughtering your animal, should it be a reactor, is less than the value of the animal. So we have the trauma of losing the animals. Mm -hmm. And what, will somebody come round here and kill them or will we have to take them away? They will organise transport and they will go to the abattoir. Right, the whole lot, if it went wrong. Anything that's a reactor will go to the abattoir. What about the youngsters? They go to the abattoir and if there's a young... So there is a risk, albeit hopefully quite small, that tonight we won't have any cattle on the farm? They wouldn't take them that quick. It would be within a week or ten days. I see. But there is a risk that tonight, and it is is a very small risk, I am reasonably confident of that much. We're touching Touching wood. Touching wood. Yeah. That tonight we no longer have a beef business. Right, I see. The reason I know that's a small risk is because, well, there are two reasons. The herd is divided into two at the moment and has been for the last six months. Yeah. It would be unlikely that both places would go down that badly so we are allowed if if we have to if we've got tb in one place we can divide the herd in two as long as we obviously don't mix them up so that we have that safeguard which is one of the advantages of having more than one farm so that's one way around it the likely outcome if they're not clear is that we will have the odd reactor or perhaps some inconclusives now inconclusive is when there is a reaction, but it's only a very small one. Yeah, um, and, and we've had both these things in the past. Not many reactors, certainly we, are, we tend to have the odd inconclusive. That can be any number of reasons. I tend to think that the animal has seen TB and fought it off, quite often gives a partial reaction, but it could be a dirty needle or that you know when the, 
the inoculant was applied, it, it took a little bit of dirt into the skin and you got a reaction to something completely different. Right, OK, so, well, what we'll do is we'll go to the rest of the show, which is much more cheery, dear listener, because we have been to the FWAG conference. I'm very proud to be a board member of FWAG, which is the Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group. The, and Farmer Phil is on the committee of Herefordshire. The reason that I'm proud is because the Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group was set up to make sure that there was a real balance in agriculture and a balance with wildlife and farming. So here we go with our interviews at the FWAG AGM where we were lucky enough to be invited by the Duke of Westminster. We're very lucky in this part of Cheshire that there is no TB in cattle. We think our badger population is clean and I think it's in our interest therefore to protect badgers on our land and then they keep away other badgers which may be diseased. We've got a lot of badgers here, you do see them all over the farm and in the feed troughs. So if TB gets closer to us then we may have to badger proof some of our livestock units. In terms of hedgerows, we cut the roadside hedges every year, but we're now developing a program cutting the internal hedges probably on a three-year rotation, paying more attention to the shape of the hedges, the height, the width, and go for the A-shape, let them grow up a little bit taller, perhaps going for six, seven feet rather than uh, anything shorter. Hedgerow trees are also something that we've become more keen on in recent years. We've been planting some more oaks and the hedgerows and that's something again that we want to continue with going forward. Also there's quite a few infield trees that you'll notice as you go around and again trying not to get too close to those leaving a good margin underneath and again trying to protect them. Well I'm here in the Duke of Westminster's dining room. It's lovely Jim isn't it? It is, it's very nice. Yeah, and we're surrounded by scenes of hunting and scenes of uh, horses because we're just opposite the carriage room. Uh, the dining table, I don't know, how many? 32-seater, I'd say. Yeah. And I'm joined by Jim, and Jim is the technical director of FWAG. Jim, just tell me a little bit about the job that you do. I've got a fantastic job. I work for a really fantastic charity, and it's quite a pleasure to work for it. The job I have is to go out there and pull together a whole raft of technical and policy stuff to help our advisors out on farm, advise farmers in the best possible way to manage the environment. And while I'm doing that, I have the, the pleasure, uh, most of the time, to help try and influence policy and what government does. So it actually brings the influence of all our farming members, all 10,000 of them, actually to bear in a very quiet and unassuming way, and we actually manage to change policy. So it's two, two roles really, one's to do that bit of it and one's to keep our team up to date and informed so farmers get the best advice at the right time and then really the, the final bit's to start to pull together communicating with our members. So give me an example of what you've done 
to change the way farming is. You know, a lot of our listeners might think that farming is just about food production. It's just about maximum output for minimum input. How have you made a difference within FWAG farming and wildlife? One of the things the organisations do on these... Something happened in England about three years ago when something called set-aside disappeared. And that was land that was put, taken out of production and left, what first farmers would call it, fallow. And it was something brought in by Europe to look after food production levels. But it actually had quite a big benefit for wildlife. And when it was removed, there was a big concern that farmers would go away and plough up all their land and just produce food and not look after the environment. And the government at the time wanted to introduce compulsory rules by which farmers would have to take 6% of their land out of production and manage it compulsorily for wildlife. Along with a lot of other people, we didn't think that was right. Why? Why? Because if you tell somebody to do something, they don't always do it in the best possible way. It's the right way to get people's backs up. I've got two teenage kids, and if I tell them what to do, they don't do it. But if you can work with them and persuade them to do the right thing and do it in a voluntary way, you get much, much better results. And uh, farmers are the same. So we, again, quietly in the background, took part in the campaign. We responded to lots of consultations. We listened to our farmer members. And surprisingly, the government listened, and they actually changed their mind. And we do really honestly know that our involvement in that did make a big difference and did actually tip the balance between it being compulsory and not. So that's one of the things we've done. We do lots and lots of other things at local level, at regional level and at national level. And hopefully we encourage farmers to do the right thing. Yeah. How do you view single issue groups? For example, you've got on the one side the Badger Trust, you've got the RSPB, you've got groups that are keen to conserve a certain wildlife species. How can FWAG work to help preserve species as well as preserve the fact that we need to produce food in the middle of the field we actually work very closely with those organizations a lot of people don't think we do it gets very prickly sometimes oh uh, is that a joke with the hedgehog society <laughs> no, 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 no it wasn't Heather. but it, it does get prickly sometimes and if uh, if you live in the modern world and tweet and twitter you'll see that mark avery says an awful lot of things from the rspb about farmers not doing certain things mark has a role in life to play he's there deliberately to raise the profile of things and actually bring people's public attention to things we take a lot of the messages the rspb give out and make them practical we work with them we help them to develop the farmland bird package we help them to bring that into the campaign for the farm environment if it wasn't for the things we were doing perhaps that those messages wouldn't be out there and spread as widely among farmers as they are so single single interest groups are important the difference between us and them is that we have a much more rounded and integrated approach with the farmer that doesn't mean the rspb don't look at other things they do and they do an awful lot of useful work and we hopefully build on that and use it FWAG was set up by farmers who could see that actually the balance of farming was going towards food production at all costs. That was the way that it was in the 60s. And FWAG was set up by farmers, it's run by farmers for farmers, to conserve and protect and promote wildlife as part of the farming venture. Is that still true, Jim? If I look in your eyes... If you look me in the eye, it really is honestly still true. You've just had two fantastic days on the Grosvenor Estate. It's been wonderful to engage with some of our farmer chairman and members. hope they've gone away from the last two days enthused and that they really do understand that we 
we do want their views, we do take their views forward, and they're really important. So we are a farmer-led organisation, and I think the 45-odd committees we have stretched across the whole of the UK that are run by farmers demonstrate that. What do you see the future? In the Um, crystal ball, in Jim's crystal ball, (laughs) what's going to happen next? We're facing lots and lots of difficulties in the immediate future, as everybody is with government spending reviews, spending cuts and everything else. I think agriculture's got a really, really bright future. I think FAG's got a fantastic future within it. And I think the general public, the people that might be listening to this, really care about where their food comes from and care about farmers doing the right things. And we've got a role to help farmers do it and actually shout about the things that they do do already. How many farmers do you think have been affected by the FAG message? Have you got any idea about... The, the sort of impact that, that FWAG is having, uh, acreage or one numbers? Of the, one of the things that sometimes makes me cross, Heather, that we don't have all those numbers to hand. One of our aims over the next year is to make sure we do. But one simple fact is we've got over 10,000 farmer members. Wherever you take the figures from about farmers, we've got over 10% of farmers in the UK are members of FWAG and take time out to listen to what we say. And as far as schemes and things go... We put forward in England over 60% of all the environmental schemes on behalf of farmers. So we do have a huge role. I'd love to be able to put the numbers on it. Hopefully, if you interview me next year, we'll be able to do it. (laughs) Jim, we can follow you on Twitter. What is your Twitter name? (laughs) You can follow me on Twitter, and it's Fwag Jim. Uh, I do my best to tweet once or twice a day, but it's not the easiest thing (laughs) in the world, and I don't tweet as often as you do. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Well, I've just grabbed our great chairman, Henry <laughs> Lucas. Um, Henry, tell me a little bit about you and your farm and why you became so enthralled and enthusiastic about FWAG. Well, I'd always been keen to do something for the environment and we, we sort of toyed around at the edges of it. And I saw years and years ago that FWAG were doing free visits. And I thought, well, well free, I'll have a go at this. And I met a, a really enthusiastic FWAG advisor who convinced me, A, I could do lots more things on the farm, and B, he could get me into countryside stewardship. And I suppose the rest is history. Then, then from, from there I joined FWAG as a member, and from there I volunteered to sit on the committee, and I've uh, progressed up the ladder from there. And what do you farm? We farm uh, beef and arable. We, we used to be dairy farmers, but we changed eight years ago to a more lowing low input, low output system and we've increased the environmental measures on our farm quite considerably uh, at that point and we've just gone into uh, a bigger HLS scheme just one year ago. So for listeners that aren't farmers, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? Have you provided more habitat for skylarks? Have you got more badgers or hedgehogs? Have you? What well, does it mean? Well, it, it means that we're providing habitat for the wildlife that's on our farm. We're improving it, increasing the, the, the nesting facilities, increasing the food that's available. We're putting, for instance, wild bird feed plots in different parts of the farm so it's spread out across the whole farm now. We've increased the amount of flower margins we've got so to help the, the bees and the butterflies. And we're looking at the farm as a whole and see what we can do for the, the wildlife and the environment as well as what we can do for our own farming system. And FWAG has provided that advice but also access to some funding? Yes, FWAG has 
provided the advice, um, given me the ability to apply for the funding and supported me whenever I turned to them for help. And has it changed your attitude towards the wildlife? Do you now go out and say, woohoo? Oh, just... oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, undoubtedly, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think I did it before, but I think I do it much more now. I, I now will sort of lean on the fence and look at it and think, wow, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And so you've become the chairman, the national chairman for FWAG. Yes. And it's been quite a challenging role because you took this post on when times were pretty, pretty tough for FWAG. In fact, the government had basically taken away the massive pot of funding that they were helping FWAG out with. How much money was disappeared? Between three, three hundred and five hundred thousand pounds that we were being supported uh, by, and that sort of very quickly disappeared, and FWAG had to become a different organisation very quickly, and it's taken us some years to find our feet, but, but luckily we have, and, and I think now we're progressing forward and putting new ideas, new ways of supporting farmers into place. And how do you see the role of FWAG? What is it for you? I think it's, a, it's an organisation that can enthuse and encourage farmers to go that one step further with, with, with the environment on their farm. But it has to always to be backed by profitable farming. You cannot do anything as, uh, unless you are profitable, because if you're not making money, you won't be doing anything. How do you see the future? Because everyone's talking about subsidies being cut and everyone's talking about the fact that we have to produce this massive amount of food for these billions of people, you know, in, I don't know, 10, 20 years' time. Won't it just mean that all your good work is undone? Because if people aren't being directly paid to look after the environment and the pressure there is to produce more and more food, doesn't that just mean that the space that you've helped allocate to wildlife life will be ripped up and turned into potatoes and uh, milk production. I, I don't think on a, on a flag supported farm I don't think that will be the case. I think because of the enthusiasm of the farmers and, and, the, and the system they, they're working in supported by flag I think they will always be a place for, for the environment and wildlife on their farms. I mean on our farm for instance we wouldn't take out all the, all the measures we got in. Probably most of them would stay because we found that they fit into our system. We've moulded the system to work with, with both the farming and the wildlife and actually one feeds off the other. So if I wasn't paying for it, I would make a lot less money probably, but it wouldn't probably change my system very much. And looking ahead, do you think you've got the right team uh, you know, to build on for the future? How's it going? It's going very well. I think we've got a very, very enthusiastic team. Um, they've all gelled very nicely. Um, the whole... Right way through, staff, volunteers, trustees, everybody seems to have one purpose, and that's to make uh, flag work and to, and to help the farmed environment. Chloe, nice to see you. Chloe is regional director. It's a business development role, really. Yes. And you're a Nuffield scholar. Yes. Just tell us what your scholarship is on and I looked at the future of hill farming. I come from a hill farming area. I'm passionate about hill farming. It's what's created the landscape and the communities and everything that we treasure. So I wanted to look towards the future for it, how we could help farmers and rural communities in the area. And I went to France, um, Ireland, 
Canada and the north of Scotland to have a look at what people were doing and how that could relate to future recommendations. Were there things that you found that could make a difference in your area and in Britain? I think the critical thing that I found that I was interested in is we refer to these areas as less favoured areas and I firmly believe that they're they're not less favoured. They're actually very favoured indeed because they've got so much to offer so many people in terms of landscape, recreational opportunities but also food production and I think food production really should stay at the heart of what they do but I do feel that the support mechanisms that are in place at the moment are not sufficient. The income foregone method of calculating payments is fundamentally flawed and we need to look at that so that these people are actually rewarded properly for what they produce. However, there's also scope for them. There's a lack of business planning in many of the farm businesses that I did see and I think that's something that needs to be addressed for the future. Because one of the things that came out of today's conference was the fact that um, we need to question who is paying for the environment and who is gaining. And it just struck me, well, I we were told, and I'd never really thought about it before, but rural tourism is benefiting hugely from farmers' environmental practice, and yet not necessarily recognising that. Was that part of what you've come across? Absolutely. I mean, it always struck me as a huge injustice that if you take where I live, in the Hope Valley, in in the Peak District... the area has 22 million visitors a year and if you take the cluster of farmers that farm around the area that I live on a typical Saturday or Sunday they might have a thousand people easily walking across their land and yet they would receive, because they're in the severely disadvantaged area, they receive far less single payment than somebody perhaps in a lowland arable area that will get almost twice as much as, as they get and a fraction of the number of people actually benefiting from the land management that they do so I think that is a huge injustice that that needs to be addressed and what does WAG deliver from your point of view what what is it for I feel very strongly that we are there to give help and support to farmers and to inspire them to make a difference for the environment on their farm but as part of a commercial farming operation and that's that last bit is absolutely critical so we're a fresh set of eyes that goes out on the farm has a look at what they're doing and can make practical suggestions for how they can farm in a more sustainable manner improve habitats for species that potentially could could live there and looking forward how do you see it for FWAG because times are tough we're also looking to Europe and looking to our European partners to look how we can work with them but I think fundamentally we see that the work we do helps the farm business it makes good business sense it makes for a sustainable farm business both in terms of the environment but also in terms of their bottom line so therefore farmers should be keen to take up our advice and will take up our advice because it makes good sense to do it irrespective of whatever funding mechanisms are in place. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you, Clary. That's brilliant. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Campbell, I know that you had Sean Bean round last week to your farm. Why? Sean Bean is starring in a series of ten episodes of a programme being made by HBO for television called The Game of Thrones. And with two days filming, and we had artificial snow, we had a guy <laughs> been executed for most of a day, we had literally hundreds of people, 45 horses in one day, and an amazing experience watching it all take place. Now, where 
where is your farm? Just give me the picture of how your farm is. Our farm is near a little place called Cairn Castle. Our house is a mile and a half from the sea. We are eight, the house is 850 feet above sea level. We look out across the North Channel towards Scotland in clear weather, and we're about half an hour from Belfast. And so you obviously planned this farm diversification, put in place a marketing strategy, dealt with the risk analysis, put together the business plan, went to the bank and got it fully funded. Or... Or a guy turns up at the door entirely unexpected one night and says, Hi, I'm Chris, a location spotter for Universal Studios. Is that your land out there? And and what's been made on your fantastic farm so that our listeners can see uh, your farm on the telly? Well, the the first film that was shot is one called Your Highness. And the leading lady in Your Highness is Natalie Portman. One of the leading actors is a guy called James Franco, who is Spider-Man. Oh, wow. The the surprising thing with these film people and the the making of it uh, is uh, they're remarkably pleasant people to deal with, although they do sometimes change their minds about 20 minutes after they've agreed something with you, and then you start again. Yeah, that's uh, arty. (laughs) We've had three biggest shoots in the last 15 months. We've had the... Your Highness, which should be out in April. It's Universal Studios, apparently. And then we've had two parts of Game of Thrones shot. They shot the, the pilot for it last year. And this year, they spent... Uh, two days shooting four scenes now how much of the farm we'll actually see I'm not sure I, mean, well, I do know that they're digitally placing castles in our land <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a big wall of ice involved in part of it too again artificially now is yours a sheep farm we are mostly sheep uh, with some cattle we have really beautiful um, landscape the backdrop to part of what they were using for the filming is a promontory fort and uh, almost two years ago now we had the time team out looking at some of the stuff on top of the promontory uh, partly in our land and partly in our neighbour's land Now you are passionate FWAG trustee in fact you were the one that invited me to come along and join the FWAG board would it be fair to say that FWAG had played a part in your in the beauty of your farm in the diversity of your farm or how how does FWAG work for you? Well, <coughs> FWAG works for me on two levels. Some people don't think much, perhaps, about the farming advice side of FWAG, but I believe very strongly that it's important that we have very good farm businesses and that we look after the heritage of what we have and enhance that alongside effective farming. We find as an industry ourselves sort of been beaten about from time to time by various wildlife and inverted commas organisations that are more interested about their own preservation than they are about the wildlife or people in the industry and in the land. And WAG, I think, is the most effective antidote that we have to that. Well, I encountered it in Scotland. I think it was Scottish saying, you know, you, you farm as if you'll live forever and you should live as if you'll die tomorrow. Yeah, thank you, Campbell. Fantastic. 
So I've got Sam Blacker, trustee and Yorkshireman. Correct. And he causes a bit of a stir every now and again on the board <laughs> by winding people up a little bit. They, well, he does them good, doesn't it? Tell it as it is. Tell it as it is. Yeah. Farmer? Retired farmer. Former farmer, should we say. Tell us your passions. My passions um, in, in the context of, of flag. <laughs> Let's go outside, babe. <laughs> I, I just purely like to see the countryside looking at its best. And as I mentioned earlier in the meeting, I was driving through Cheshire today to the meeting and the countryside looks superb. I know it's, it's, um, it's late October, the trees are looking superb. And I like to think in a little bit of a way that I've had a bit of an input into that and I get a real buzz from it. Now, you said, you got up on stage and you said that you could tell the farm Correct. that had had a flag influence. I can indeed. Can you explain to the dear listener who may not have that experienced eye, <laughs> I certainly don't, what you mean by being able to see a flag farm compared to, I don't know, another uh, Well, a, a flag farm, it's got conservation, but in a sort of an ordered way about it. You, you can tell by the style of the hedgerows and the way they're planted and the species in the hedgerows that it's flag advice that does it. And as I said earlier, I get a real buzz from that because I think I'm doing my little bit to keep this countryside looking absolutely superb. So is it the margins? Is it the ponds? Is it the... It's just a, it's the total style of it. I've been involved with FWAG now for 20-odd years and over that time I've seen a lot of FWAG work and it, it, it's just the style with which they come up with, with the schemes that are done because a lot of these schemes are grant-aided, as you realise. And it's public money and yet the public are benefiting from it because, it, you know, it's the landscape that we all love and enjoy. And would you say that that has made a direct impact on the amount of wildlife there is, the variation in wildlife? You know, as a farmer, do you yeah. go out and say, oh, I've just seen this, that and the other? Well, I was walking around my own part of the world the other day and I saw little owls, I saw herons, I saw buzzards, I actually saw wild mink, which maybe isn't too good, that possibly shouldn't have been there. But yes, it does help. The variety of species draw different types, the variety of species of shrubs and trees I'm talking about here, draw different birds insects, whatever, and you can always tell yes it helps. Now, it's just me and you now Sam, Okay. do you Forget think, <laughs> yeah, do you think that flag farmers are nicer? And the reason I ask you this is because I found that flag farmers are generally nice I think there's a certain way of looking at the world that a flag farmer has that perhaps some other farmers don't. And it's a kind of more balanced approach. It's a kind of less greedy approach. It's mm -hmm. a kind of we're looking to the future for a long time approach. I know where you're coming from on that one. They are looking at it because it's not only their workplace, it's where they live as well, you know, and it's the total surroundings. However, I would like to pick up on the point that Farmers are also quite hard-hearted, hard-headed businessmen, and a lot of these schemes they're doing are grant-aided, so basically they're getting paid for doing what they like. Best of both worlds, isn't it? Thank you, Sam. Pleasure. <laughs> edit, edit, edit. <laughs> so, dear listener, another day has gone by on the uh, farm. In fact, it's just starting to get dark, and it's only just four o'clock. And we've had the vet here for most of the day, Neil Newton. Thank you very much, Neil. And he's been over to Campston and tested the cattle on that farm as well. I'm pleased to say that we passed our test except for one reactor. And the one reactor was a heifer. And she was a group of six heifers that were in a different field. 
and we think that they have been exposed to TB because two others had very slight reactions but aren't called a reactor. So I'm very glad to say that we're still cattle farmers at the end of the day, which is great. And uh, for those other cattle farmers out there having their cows tested, good luck to you. We've had so many tweets of support today on Twitter. Thank you very much from all around the world. And what will happen is in six weeks' time, she will be retested and hopefully she will go clear because what we think is that she's likely to have been exposed to the disease and fought it off. So there we are. I hope you enjoyed your FWAG podcast and I'd just like to share with you a review that came in today from Rich Thomas. Now then... For those of you who haven't seen a apple picking machine, it seems to be a little machine that whizzes around an apple orchard and the person that drives it seems to wrap up as if they were going into outer space and get covered in leaves, water, rubbish, apples, soil, grass. And so this is from Rich Thomas a local lad and he's just said Heather I've just downloaded the latest podcast from your website I'm really looking forward to listening to the meat edition that was trailed last week after the detailed info on grass conservation I know I will learn something if not a lot keep up the good work it keeps me company while I whiz around our orchards on my apple picker thanks Rich for that if you'd like to leave a review go to iTunes please Any noises that you can hear are the Wiggly Office rustling up orders and things. Go to iTunes and you can put a review up there. If you want to follow me, I'm at Wiggled on Twitter. Farmer Phil is at Farmer Phil without an E. And you can email me, heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk. And if you want to place an order for Christmas, you've secretly got tons of time. But we'd love to have it in now so that we can get it ready and we're not rushed in last week and it all goes wrong. Thanks, bye.